Dear fellow settler colonizer, I'm sitting on the Oval, the green space at the heart of Ohio State University campus where I teach, here in Columbus, Ohio. Before I say anything else, I'd like to acknowledge that the land in which I am speaking from today has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst indigenous peoples specifically the Shawnee, Miami, Wyandotte, and Delaware nations. And I honor and respect the diverse indigenous peoples connected to this territory from which I speak. I also, beyond the land acknowledgement of my university's website, would like to add that I acknowledge all the expropriated indigenous land that made our institution possible during the land grab of the 1862 Morrill Act. These include scripts far away from Ohio, in what is now Nebraska and California. Ohio State University received 614,325 acres of indigenous land, and I would claim that any land acknowledgement is useless if it doesn't at least gesture towards a process of returning this land and the payment of reparations. I'm recording this show called Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer. On Tuesday, January 19th, 2021, the last day of the Trump presidency. When you're listening to this in the future, when it is streamed on Verge FM this Friday, January 22nd, 2021, in the first days of the Biden presidency. But in those days, with a new administration, what really will have changed for the indigenous peoples of this country? And to flip it back to ourselves, what kind of changes will we make as settler colonizers now that the dark days of Trump are beyond us? Will anything change for us in our acknowledgement of our roles in ongoing uh, alienation of these nations? As I sit here, I'm reminded of an afternoon back on October 11th, 2017, then I used to be a professor in the Department of Classics, a shorthand for the study of the ancient cultures of Greece and Rome and their ongoing legacies. Now I'm an art education professor, and some of that story of how this persona and project of Minus Plato moving away from the chokehold that the Western canon and its formulation of philosophy and aesthetics going back to Plato has had on us, uh, will be part of this show. That said, the move in my own work to engage with the transformative power of indigenous art making in the contemporary world uh, has been necessary for my own leaving behind of this Western canon. But back then when I was a classicist, I found myself thinking as I sat on the Ohio State Oval about the Roman poet Virgil and his poem, The Aeneid, the epic tale of the mythical foundations of another empire, ancient Rome. And I'm thinking specifically of a moment in book six of Virgil's poem, where the hero Aeneas visits the underworld to speak to the shade of his father Anchises. In a poetic sleight of hand, Virgil has Anchises tell the mythical hero of the future heroes of Rome, the city he's destined to found, and also to learn of the imperial domination of the Roman people over other nations. 
Virgil uses the mythical past to project as an address to his own contemporary Roman audience, who are living in the so-called golden age of an emperor named Augustus. Virgil writes, Remember, Roman, it is for you to rule the nations with your power. That will be your skill, to crown peace with law, to spare the conquered and subdue the proud. Now, I recall Anchises's chilling words that are in sharp contrast to a project, a portfolio, by the indigenous and mestizo artistic collective Post Commodity that were in that month, October 2017's issue of the magazine Art in America, which was a special issue dedicated to contemporary indigenous art. I was so moved at the time by Post Commodity's portfolio and their words that I recited it to my philosophical problems in the arts class earlier that day. In this text, Post Commodity described with their vision of the year 2043, when non-whites will be the majority of the US population. And they demand a revision of our institutions around a concept of capacity that is a call for greater equity, whereby we, we settler colonizers, acknowledge the indigenous potential for steward relationships, respect and love of both land and people. It's this shift from empire to stewardship that is so timely, as well as this emphasis on the wisdom of the elder, for it requires us, as post-commodity right, to be vulnerable, disrupted and courageous as we work towards this future of 2043 starting today. And I'm reminded of this now because this radio show, Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, is an expression of this vulnerability, talking to you, my listeners, and you listening to me, try to process what it means to acknowledge the realities of our colonial context here in the US, but at the same time, to channel, to engage with, to learn from the transformative work of indigenous artists like Post Commodity is really essential work right now. And so before going on to describe some of those experiences with these artists, as part of my Minus Plato project, let us ask ourselves, who are we? Who is a settler colonizer? The history of the United States is a history of settler colonialism, the founding of a state based on the ideology of white supremacy, the widespread practice of African slavery, and a policy of genocide and land theft. Those who seek history with an upbeat ending a history of redemption and reconciliation, may look around and observe that such a conclusion is not visible, not even in utopian dreams of a better society. Writing U.S. history from an indigenous people's perspective requires rethinking the consensual national narrative. That narrative is wrong or deficient, not in its facts, dates, or details, but rather in its essence. Inherent in the myth we've been taught is an embrace of settler colonialism and genocide. The myth persists, not for a lack of free speech or poverty of information, but rather for an absence of motivation to ask questions that challenge the core of the scripted narrative of the origin story. How might acknowledging the reality of U.S. history work to transform society? That is the central question this book pursues. What were you just you were just listening to was an excerpt from the book 
An Indigenous People's History of the United States, written by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and published in 2014. The section that you heard of the audiobook version of the book comes from the introduction called This Land and the explanation of the history of the United States as a settler colonial history grounded in white supremacy and the suppression and slavery of African peoples is very explicitly described as one of genocide and land theft. The important element in Dunbar-Ortiz's book as a whole, especially for this show, Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, is that it's the acknowledgement of the reality of the foundation and ongoing existence of this country as a settler colonial country. And what that means is how would the acknowledging of this reality transform society. Now, Dunbar-Ortiz goes on to expound the various myths that are associated with the foundation of the United States, from Puritan settlers to also the Columbus myth and the doctrine of discovery. And where I'm speaking to you from today, in Columbus, Ohio, a city named after Christopher Columbus, the name that is at the basis of myths associated with this so-called land of Columbus, even things like federal holidays, like Columbus Day, are intrinsic to this history of the settler colonial state. At the same time, Dunbar-Artiz also refers to moves to adjust the history and the reality of the US as a settler colonial state. And she refers to two Move, such moves, especially emanating within the academy. And again, that is where I am speaking from as a professor at Ohio State University. One of those is the what she calls the trendy postmodernist studies of indigenous agency. This was a kind of an approach to history that puts aside present responsibility for continued harm. Another is multiculturalism, which obviously emerged out of the post-civil rights movement in the US and focused on questions of immigration and multicultural context in the US. Multiculturalism demands a denial or a rejection or a forgetting of the US as a settler colonial condition. So there's a way in which multiculturalism is seen as the many peoples of this land without acknowledging the original and still existent presence of the original people of this land. The next clip I'm going to play to you uh, comes from a section that follows this discussion of postmodernism and multiculturalism. And it's important because it states how, how important it is to acknowledge and dwell on the colonial framework for this country. Uh, and any settler colonial context, uh, especially when considering what we're doing in this show, which is engaging with the transformative power of indigenous art making. So let's listen in to another clip from Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's An Indigenous People's History of the United States. To say that the United States is a colonialist settler state is not to make an accusation, but rather to face historical reality without which consideration not much in U.S. history makes sense, unless indigenous peoples are erased. But indigenous nations, through resistance, 
have survived and bear witness to this history. In the era of worldwide decolonization in the second half of the 20th century, the former colonial powers and their intellectual apologists mounted a counterforce, often called neo-colonialism, from which multiculturalism and postmodernism emerged. Although much revisionist U.S. history reflects neo-colonialist strategy, an attempt to accommodate new realities in order to retain the dominance, neo-colonialist methods signal victory for the colonized. Such approaches pry off a lid long kept tightly fastened. One result has been the presence of significant numbers of indigenous scholars in U.S. universities who are changing the terms of analysis. The main challenge for scholars in revising U.S. history in the context of colonialism is not lack of information, nor is it one of methodology. Certainly difficulties with documentation are no more problematic than they are in any other area of research. Rather, the source of the problems has been the refusal or inability of the U.S. historians to comprehend the nature of their own history, U.S. history. The fundamental problem is the absence of the colonial framework. Dear fellow settler colonizer, to call ourselves this, to speak of ourselves in this way, to reiterate Dunbar Ortiz's point, is not to make an accusation, but is to face a historical reality. And the refusal and inability for us settlers to do that is a fundamental problem. And for the purposes of this show, an immediate blockade against an engagement with the transformative power of contemporary indigenous art making. The next and final selection from Dunbar Ortiz's book that I want to share with you focuses on perhaps the most important element of our realization and our recognition of this as a settler colonial context, and that is the question and the reality of genocide. U.S. history, as well as inherited indigenous trauma, cannot be understood without dealing with the genocide that the United States committed against indigenous peoples. From the colonial period through the founding of the United States and continuing in the 21st century, this has entailed torture, terror, sexual abuse, massacres, systematic military occupations, removals of indigenous peoples from their ancestral territories, and removals of indigenous children to military-like boarding schools. The absence of even the slightest note of regret or tragedy in the annual celebration of the U.S. independence betrays a deep disconnect in the consciousness of U.S. Americans. It is this disconnect in the consciousness of us settler colonizers in the contemporary United States that goes somewhere to describe what I first learned from the curator Candace Hopkins, the idea of colonial aphasia, an idea that she acknowledges the work of Laura Stoller, but also uh, the work of James Baldwin in referencing, and the idea of a willful uh, forgetting or refusal to remember the violence that has formed this country and other settler states. So this radio show is determined to stay with the trouble of that formation. And that's why we are named as such, and that's why we speak 
to our fellow settler colonizers in this way. I do want to bring us back to a question that was raised when reading from the Art in America post-commodity portfolio, and that is the question of why listen to the words of an indigenous artist or writer, in this case Dunbar Ortiz, on the radio show produced by a white male British US citizen and not an indigenous person. And I do want to acknowledge here how the audiobook version of an indigenous people's history of the United States, you're listening to it in the voice of Laurel Merlington, so not narrated by an indigenous person. And I think that that has to be uh, acknowledged. And there, I found one online, I found one review of the audiobook that is uh, by Audiophile magazine, uh, in which they say, and I quote, Narrator Laurel Mellington approaches this book with a dispassionate voice that enunciates every word but fails to capture the essence of the author's intent. This audiobook needs a little more emotion, or a narrator with a more elastic presentation. Merlington's straightforward delivery accentuates the good history this book represents, but falls short in providing what is clearly meant to be an, what is clearly meant to be an engaging experience. And I would take that review further and say uh, the absence of an indigenous narrator for this project for Dumbaratiza's book, which transformed my engagement and interest in the indigenous context of this country and their ongoing battles for survivance that uh, I think that, that it would be great if the, the publisher would include a, a different narrator. To return to the pages of the issue of Art in America from October 2017 that I began this show with, there's an article that's called Under Indigenous Eyes by Gerald McMaster, and this article begins with a, a reference to another work by Post Commodity, and why what you have just been listening to uh, is relevant. Uh, the, little piece of pink noise. Uh, so let me just read the, uh, the beginning of this, uh, as this is a work that was one of those works by Indigenous artists that had a transformative influence on me at the exhibition Documenter 14 uh, that took place in Athens, Greece and Kassel, Germany back in the summer of 2017, and which uh, was the cause of my leaving behind the academic discipline of classics uh, the study of the ancient Mediterranean cultures of Greece and Rome, uh, to turn into an art educator dedicated to decolonial arts education. So this is what McMaster writes. To enter one of the main venues of Documenta 14 in Kassel, Germany, the visitor had to cross a threshold designed by indigenous artists. Positioned in a revolving door, Blind Curtain 2017, is a sound piece that emits pink noise, a low-frequency drone that effectively blocks all other sounds. In an exhibition text, Post Commodity, 
the collective of artists from the American Southwest, see their portfolio in this issue, who created the piece, describe its cleansing function. The oral experience reminded me of the sweet grass or sage smoke used in many native rituals. I encountered Post Commodities' work early on a trip through Europe to see two of the most important international contemporary art exhibitions, Documenta and the Venice Biennale. Blind Curtain was an apt introduction to both shows, signalling, as it did, the striking presence of works by indigenous artists. These artists have diverse backgrounds, but their art can also be viewed through the lens of global indigeneity, a concept that specifies a coherent set of cultural and political aspirations shared by indigenous people across continents. On the international stage, expressions of distinct localised traditions can reveal broad, common concerns, including support for indigenous sovereignty and resistance to colonialism. So moving away from the pages of Art in America, McMaster's account of Documenta 14, I wanted to spend a few minutes with you today to share my experiences visiting these exhibitions, specifically Documenta 14 in Athens and Castle, and the presence of indigenous artists and artwork there. Uh, but also in a project, a Minus Plato project that has been developing since, which has been to think about how these large biennial style exhibitions across the world set themselves up as unfinished exhibitions, exhibitions where the work is not done once the doors close and the visitors leave, works which can be entered into through publications or online content. And an unfinished exhibition is really an invitation to a conversation, an invitation to heed the resonances that continue. And I think this is very much tied into the necessity to remember, dear fellow settler colonizer, where we are and who we are in this land. We can't just forget. We can't have this colonial aphasia that I mentioned just before, introduced to me by a Documenta 14 curator Candice Hopkins. And I have to use this opportunity to thank Candice because it is really thanks to her work at that exhibition, at Documenta 14, in selecting Indigenous artists to be part of that exhibition that was so transformative for me. These artists included Bo Dick, who sadly passed away during the run uh, of the exhibition, as well as uh, Rebecca Belmore, her marble tent that faced the uh, ruins of the Greek Parthenon. And then an artist who I've had the opportunity to dialogue with since, Nathan Pohio, a Maori artist, as well as the Mata Aho Collective, Collective of Maori Women, and uh, as well as the historical work of Ralph Otera, another Maori artist, and the photographs of John Miller that were included in one of the publications, uh, The South as a State of Mind magazine. I also, in the pilot for Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, uh, that was part of Verge FM's kind of sneak peek, I had a dialogue with Kerry Mitchell, a student in our art education program here at Ohio State, about the artwork, uh, not only of Australian artist Bonita Ely, but the indigenous artists Gordon Hookey and Dale Harding as well, both included in the Documenta 14 exhibition. Perhaps most strikingly, for this exhibition was the presence of a number of Sami artists uh, from the regions of northern Scandinavia, 
uh, SAPMI. Uh, and these included Jua Nango, uh, as well as uh, three members of the Sami Artist Group, and also um, uh, Marit Sa Sara uh, as well, as well as uh, historical artists, either, um, either Jacks. And beyond uh, these artists included, there were other artists that were occupying more, more kind of spaces of indigenous mediators, uh, mestizo and indigenous groups like Post Commodity, uh, as well as artists like uh, Cecilia Bircunha, whose work deeply engages with indigenous uh, knowledge and arts practices in the Andean uh, region in her native Chile. Also, artists like the New York-based uh, Peruvian-born uh, sound artist Maria Chavez, uh, as well, uh, as well as artists that were uh, channeling and, and who collaborated with indigenous communities like uh, Kwe Samnang uh, as well. And so there's such a wealth of experience that I had at this exhibition, which was primarily focused on questions of immigration, questions of debt, questions of uh, rise of fascist and right-wing movements across Europe. And so the, the, the significance of indigenous presence at a European uh, blockbuster exhibition in the way in which Candice Hopkins and the other curators brought those artists to the spaces of Athens and of Castle was was really uh, enlightening and, and important. And this is why, for me, this exhibition is unfinished. It continues. It continues in my classes and continues with my work and learning the classical traditions of uh, the Western canon that formed my education. And so I would be, I, I would follow the artists that were part of this exhibition in future biennial style exhibitions and solo exhibitions. For example, Joa Nango, the Sami uh, artist and architect with a major role at the uh, Abadakone exhibition of uh, global indigenous art in Ottawa uh, in 2019. Also, Rebecca Belmore's tent, uh, the marble tent uh, from inside, was there also included in the Abadakone exhibition as well. Uh, but also other threads as well that, that, that stemmed from um, this engagement. So not only you know, the literal presence of artists, post-commodity at the Carnegie International, uh, as well as the Honolulu Biennial, but also artists that I discovered because of this dedicated focus to indigenous art making at Documenta 14. For example, at the Front Triennial in Cleveland, uh, not far from where I live, uh, the presence of uh, the Hawaii artist Sean Connolly, as well as uh, Sky Hopinka, um, uh, the film, um, Ho-Chunk filmmaker, uh, whose work has had a really profound influence on me, and I've followed his work um, ever since discovering it at the uh, Transformer Station, the film uh, venue for uh, Front. And uh, Sky Hopinka was also included in the film program of um, Abadakone. And then artists like uh, from the Whitney Biennial in 2019, uh, so Nicholas Galanin, uh, as well as Laura Ortman, uh, The New Red Order, 
uh, artists that uh, really um, I've been following since and uh, as we'll come to hear in a little bit I've been part of at least uh, Altman and Galanin are part of the settlement uh, project that we're going to discuss at the end of today's show and so this is really just an, an overview of the the, the, the impact uh, that these artists have had on me but I think it's it's important for me to kind of step back and acknowledge and register how something that was started at Documenta 14 continues and the whole reason I have a uh, this radio show uh, addressing my positionality as a settler colonizer is thanks to uh, the work of indigenous artists and curators, uh, specifically uh, Candace Hopkins uh, as well. Uh, Candace is also a curator at the Toronto Biennial, which is a, a, which also included New Red Order, uh, as well as uh, Raven Chacon as well, who is a member of, the, of Post Commodity former member Caroline Monet, Dana Claxton, uh, and the really vital work of the um, theatre group run by Ange Loft as well in addressing the, uh, uh, the treaty um, in Toronto as well. So, you know, again, I could spend all this time discussing these works, but I just wanted to kind of give a, a taste of the, the work that had, had been this real transformative influence on me. While I could mention many other exhibitions, and uh, I can't stop without saying uh, something about Niren, uh, the 22nd Sydney Biennial, uh, which was curated by an Indigenous artist, Brooke Andrew, and actually during the pandemic entered into a, an online phase, which is very important uh, for my work, uh, and many Indigenous artists were represented in that exhibition, and uh, along with a collaborator that I'm very happy to be working with right now, Leulia Shragi. Uh, but let us move now to uh, Settlement. Now, uh, Settlement is a project that was is called Settlement, an Indigenous Digital Worldwide Occupation, and it was conceived as a month-long Indigenous-led encampment in Plymouth in the UK, uh, actually not far from where my mother lives. And it was meant to take place in the summer of 2020 as part of the Mayflower 400 commemoration events, but due to the pandemic, uh, it was pivoted to an on-site engagement. And what you're going to hear now is a snippet from one of the Red Brigade films that introduces the project, Red Brigade film director Roselli Benali, and it has the music of artist Laura Ortman. expectation is that we arrive with buckskins and feathers. The expectation is that we are somehow outside of our present time. And I thought it would be important to make, make a settlement in the UK bringing hyper-contemporary, very present Indigenous people from so many different nations to develop this idea of complexity so that we're not one-dimensional, so that we can celebrate our arts and our sciences and not be reduced to, you know, a brave or warrior in the context of the beauty that is our vast and varied cultures. That was a big part of, of what I thought settlement could potentially be, was, a, was an opportunity and an exchange of intersectionality 
rather than a voyeuristic experience of look at the Indians. Okay, so the voice you just heard was that of artist Chinupa Hanska-Luga, who is the concept artist of Settlement Indigenous Digital Occupation. And I'm very lucky, happy to say that uh, we have Chinupa here today, and I'd like you to welcome you to the radio show. How are you today? I am well. How are you doing, Richard? I'm well, I'm well, and I'm really grateful to have you here. And I just thought maybe our listeners would like to hear a little bit about Settlement. So if you could uh, just give us an overview of the project, that'd be wonderful. Sure, the project began with a with an ask from the Conscious Sisters who are embedded in Plymouth, UK to uh, build a physical occupation in the central park of uh, um, Plymouth, UK. And I guess that uh, they had a concept kind of embedded in all of that that they sent to us. And um, what we realized was that there was a lot of kind of like missing pieces and, you know, as well as, you know, um, there were ideas that were embedded in that that seemed harmless, but were from the perspective of an indigenous voice and uh, body in, um, you know, what is, you know, still considered perhaps maybe a bit of a hostile environment, especially when you're in a position of being a lone settler uh, on said environment. There were things that were embedded in it that were, um, not like overtly, but uh, passively racist, you know? Um, and, and these things happen because we don't ask questions, you know? We, we make assumptions and we, we, we move through our um, kind of like surface experience of what it means to be indigenous. And it's like, um, I appreciate those sorts of kind of altercations because it allows growth, you know, and it allows space. And that was something that the Conscious Sisters had done um, from the beginning that really kind of sparked uh, uh, interest in participating in this project. My, my initial impulse was like, this is Mayflower 400. Uh, my people who are in the Midwest of North America had never seen pilgrims. You know, we weren't engaged with uh, uh, settler colonialism uh, until Western expansion. And uh, my people, you know, didn't feel really the impact of that expansion until the 1800s. And so, um, so I, you know, my initial impulse was like, no, thank you, I pass, you know, but as we, uh, as we dove deeper, and I saw the questions that were that were being generated by people who were considered allies, I thought, you know, maybe we really have to have a bigger conversation, not around the commemoration of, of one movement of people, but um, the impact of 400 years of colonization, you know, and how it has stretched and affected so many different people um, and how the concept of that, um, if we're commemorating it, let's commemorate the impact, you know, let's commemor commemorate and, and recall how that idea has kind of like shifted. And so, um, we recontextualized the original ask and um, decided that, you know, an individual voice cannot be the voice as representative of Native people because that also is one of these uh, perilous kind of positions we get put in 
um, as a relatively small population, we exist under this umbrella of Native American, and yet we are, you know, close to 600 different tribes. We have many different languages, cultural practices, and um, and the reality is, from my experience traveling to Europe and and being a part of exhibitions in those spaces, we are still one-dimensional entities in the gaze of of, of a, a European audience, you know. Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions embedded in that. And I believe that they were reinforced because individuals were asked to, to be the position to talk about all native people. And so with that being said, I was like, look, this is something I can't do alone. Let me invite more people so that we have complexity generating um, so that we can contradict one another so that we can we can be more than a one-dimensional entity within gaze and and actually allow conversation to develop um, that doesn't have solutions or answers but actually generates more and more questions and develops a more robust identity for native people in uh, in under the European lens you know and so this kind of culminated, to uh, bringing around 30 different artists from many different tribal affiliations um, as far out into um, the Pacific Ocean as Hawaii and Guam, uh, because these are all histories of this kind of like expansion. And Plymouth seemed to be the port in which most colonial ex, you know, exports uh, uh, left from. And we were like, this is a perfect opportunity to go to um, a region that has a seafaring history and we can talk about the impact of that and actually you know, do a reverse colonial experiment and try to figure out ways to do it where we could high road what we've learned from the faults of, of this 400 year history. You know? And so our intention was to build something. Um, it eventually got moved into an existing uh, manor house that, that the grounds of the, of the Plymouth um, Central Park is a part of, which was Pound's house. And that was gonna be the building that we were gonna occupy because it seemed to be the way that we could create, well, one, an honest narrative to the, to the um, pilgrim experience where they did take over an existing village. And I was like, let's take over an existing, why, why should we build a whole new one and, and um, allocate resources and then consider on how we uh, redistribute those resources afterwards when there is brick and mortar here that is empty, you know. And so we got to we got to um, have the opportunity to take over Pound's house and create all of this programming for a month long um, engagement on the physical landscape. Uh, but then once again, and not surprisingly to the indigenous lens, but now a global impact was the effect of virus, you know, and um, a, a global pandemic struck and we had to recontextualize how we were gonna create this engagement. And in that, with the work of, of um, our organizer on the US side, uh, Ginger Lynn Donnell, uh, together we just kind of like reconsidered what this occupation could look like and considered the platform of digital space, you know, digital space as being this uh, borderless uh, um, region where we can build a settlement that's embedded in indigenous ideas and indigenous thought. And even the, the way it's laid out is a little bit more concise to um, indigenous customary protocols, you know, and, and embedding, um, embedding our, our work before the artists who, who made it, you know? And then also looking at how we've kind of like 
uh, overlapped with one another and, um, and, and through a digital lens, the, the kind of incredible thing that developed out of that is that there was no physical occupation of space. And the, um, the, even if, though it was temporary, that concept always sit, sat weird with me and kind of the rest of the artists of like, how can we have this conversation while we are still uh, uh, operating in the same mode that has afflicted our cultures and people, you know? And so it being digital was actually, in my opinion, possibly the best outcome of this settlement project in that what we had the opportunity to do is actually visit artists in the place that they call home and um, share what it means to belong to place to an audience as an example of, of um, recontextualing the idea of, of settlement. You know, um, we, always, we always considered the legal term of settlement uh, rather than the physical occupation of space. We're like, this is an opportunity for us to come to terms, you know, to, to have discussions and perhaps leave this place with a better understanding of what it means to be um, indigenous, what it means to be occupied and what it means to be uh, colonized and colonizer, you know? Well, Chinuba, thank you so much for, for, for presenting that overview of the project. And you know, as we've, we've talked about uh, kind of offline uh, that I have, uh, and I, it's gonna be part of this show is this idea of the kind of my connection with Plymouth, my mother lives there, and just this expectation of what it means for that community to undergo, to experience this, uh, um, this settlement there and how that has been transformed by it being into a digital settlement. Um, but then now here we are speaking on an internet radio on Verge FM uh, as a, a kind of uh, engagement of that. And so I just, again, I'm very grateful for you to be here. And I think what you're speaking of specifically, just that one point about, you know, about questions of uh, spokesperson or uh, representative of uh, so many uh, complex peoples uh, and communities. Um, I, you know, I've by claiming the title of dear fellow settler colonizer, you know, I'm also kind of making like problematizing that. Why, uh, when a uh, a white man speaks, it's often seen as, you know, there's a uh, a, a not kind of a focus on their singularity as not being able to represent anyone other than themselves. So there's a, there's a complexity to um, uh, a positionality, which I think is very important that we, that we register having this, you know, we're, we're speaking on Zoom, we're looking at each other, we, we, are, we are two humans in this, uh, beyond as well the, 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 the deep um, problems of existence settler colonialism, which this show is, is focusing on and which settlement is uh, you know, one of the most, uh, when I encountered it and when I saw it was then transitioning to being online and digital space, that was, uh, you know, that added to my uh, intrigue with it because of this sense of, uh, of, of where is location, where is this? Um, and also questions of longevity and where it will exist in the future, which I think is really, you know, creating sometimes online space can be a, a kind of marker for for temporal 
continuity in ways where exhibitions are often or, or performances or installations can sometimes feel like once it's happened, it's been written about, it has then become archived and the website is, is more than that. So, uh, so yeah, so thank you. And yeah, we definitely want it to be generative beyond our uh, uh, capital support from the UK. You know, we were looking at ways to um, allow it to exist beyond that moment um, and be a generative space because there aren't many um, uh, online hubs for contemporary indigenous art, especially under the um, under the umbrella of like a pan indigenous experience, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we always thought that this would be a really interesting. We we wanted to do it even as though we were doing a physical um, occupation. We always considered having some sort of hub. Um, particularly so that we could have access to our communities back home. Um, the interface of, of uh, social media and um, online kind of experiences would allow our communities, because they are varied and many, um, mm -hmm. to actually experience what we were experiencing as we were uh, you know, actively participating in this engagement. So um, it wasn't a far cry or leap. It was really just leaning into um, an asset that we already considered to, to be a part of the project. Um, and we just got to put more of our effort and time into exploring that space, which also made it a lot more generative as far as its impact and reach. You know, now, you know, I've, I've had uh, engagements on there and we've you know, put content onto the video and have had responses globally rather than just the region of Plymouth itself. And once we start talking about the commemoration and the movement of colonialism, this is not just a, uh, 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 you know, effort from the, from the kingdom of, you know, Britain and the UK. This is like, this has been a global effort and there are many different um, assets and, and functions within that. And, and the world had been colonized by, by very few, but many, you know, uh, different entities. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I, I guess, so the question that, so the question that I wanted to kind of start with is, so our listeners have just been hearing how uh, I, Richard Fletcher, in this platform of Minus Plato, have gone through several what I've described as transformative experiences thanks to encounters with indigenous artists and artworks. And this show in general, and in my work in general, I've been thinking about how to get the balance between communicating and sharing these experiences, um, even to the level of, uh, as earlier in the show, how to even quote and, and read out uh, um, texts and, 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 and statements and positions from indigenous artists. Um, so how to share and communicate these um, while at the same time acknowledging that this work is not for me and not for the fellow settler colonizers on this, uh, who I'm targeting this show for, um, it's not for us uh, to mediate or appropriate for our own ends. So this is kind of like the big question of this show, kind of why does a settler colonizer uh, um, feel this, you know, what, 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 what can I do in order to um, to share how transformative this engagement has been without uh, kind of occupying this position of mediation. And, and, and your, your presence here, Chinooka, is, 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 is to dialogue with me, and I'm so grateful for you to dialogue with this very specific problem. Yeah, well, the reality is <clears throat> we've never done anything alone. 
ever, you know? Um, so I think it's important that we, we um, you know, flex our privilege where our privilege exists in order to amplify and move um, ideas that are, that are outside. And if your position of privilege is that people are more inclined to listen to you and your voice within your community, transmitting ideas from indigenous people becomes uh, an asset to, to um, kind of filter through. It's not gonna be the solution. It's not the direct answer and it's not the word from the, from the horse's mouth, you know? But what it is, is not everybody speaks horse, you know? And so you being able to like recontextualize that and speak in a language that's understood and received and accepted starts to push the bar towards uh, a, a greater understanding. You know, you're, you're not doing the work in a, in a sense of having it completed. You're doing the work in the sense that it takes a long time to actually um, uh, disseminate some of the preconceived notions. And so you're helping to like, uh, remove a few layers of these veils, right? Um, I think it is important to be able to communicate some of these ideas. And I, as, as an artist, you know, this is the majority of what I do as well. I'm often in spaces that are controlled from Western uh, lens and uh, academia and understanding. And my uh, experience and filter that I received is one of, a, of indigenous customary knowledge. And so there are things that I might skip over because I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. And it's actually really helpful to work with somebody who can speak colonizer, you know? Uh, they might have questions that would dig deeper into things that I have taken for granted um, that would help kind of alleviate some of those, those concepts and ideas and uh, have a more whole and generative kind of exchange, you know? So I do appreciate the space and, you know, primarily the acknowledgement of our fault, you know, the where it's one thing to weaponize our privilege, but it's another thing to recognize where we are lacking, you know, um, and, and recognizing that we cannot be authority in spaces that we are only visiting in, you know? Um, and most of Western kind of, systems of cataloging and, and organizing um, history and culture is an effort to preserve things. Whereas from, from my experience, and I believe the experience of most human beings on the planet, we are not in the business of preserving our cultures and history. We are in the business of maintaining it. And maintenance is a completely different narrative than preservation. Um, maintenance has an incomplete end it, and it is constantly generative. Um, culture is, a, is, a, is an idea that's in flux. And I believe that that's true for art as well. We've celebrated it as objects, but um, art is a verb and it is constantly, um, I don't make art, I do art, you know? Uh, I create things and the creation is what is perfect. From that point on, it's subject to entropy and all of the cataloging and capitalistic kind of uh, ideas and modes that are systemic in our global society. But that can't, what can't be taken away from me and what I'm really interested in figuring out how to share is the process, you know, to, to make something, to create something is really where art is um, its most powerful. And really even the definition of art doesn't necessarily explain what it is. You know, this is, this is intergenerational um, efforts, you know, things that, that we've learned from people who are already dead that has been passed down from generation to generation. And we're just the edge of that, you know, we don't even know 
um, it's continuously growing. We don't know how sharp it's going to get, you know, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's generative. So there's something in that, I think, um, that you, is a position that you can, you can exist in as well. You are not creating a book, you know, you are not writing down these things to be embedded in, uh, in a historical context. You were, you were operating in the realm of radio and people get to hear these things and when they retell those stories they become their stories as well so this is how we generate kind of culture as a as a process of maintenance versus preservation i'm, I'm really i'm really glad you mentioned this framing of the radio because i was thinking you know i am occupying this place of host in a, for a, a radio station uh, but at the same time verge fm is a, a radio station that's committed for um, kind of challenging the positionality that I, I present to the world um, in terms of um, diverse uh, um, presenters and information and these kinds of things. So that idea of host and guest, I think, on the radio show, and I think, Chanupa, I, I, I'd like to invite you not as a host to this show, but as in, in the complexity of uh, this, this ongoing question of maintenance, um, that maybe we can just jump next month, we can jump into another conversation, another question, so we can continue this. Uh, would you be willing to do that if we can continue to, to, to kind of uh, interrupt uh, this settler narrative of this radio show with uh, this conversation between us in future episodes? Yeah, I think as long as it fits with my schedule, I am happy to engage for an hour or so. That's kind of the really interesting aspect of, um, you know, a, a digital interface for, for uh, uh, exhibition. I, for the last three years, have been traveling all over the world to do presentations and to stand in front of audiences behind a podium. And it, the, the resources that are allocated to, to transport my body to those places and the time that it takes away from me being a father at home um, has been taxing on, on um, myself and my family. So now that we're getting acclimated to the, the, this digital realm um, of, of exhibiting ideas and sharing ideas uh, through the force of a, of a global pandemic, um, it's also been really uh, a relief for me as somebody who's kind of used to standing in those spaces to um, be able to get off the off the line with you now and go and have uh, lunch with my family, you know, and not be a week away from them. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be great. Okay, well, until until next time, Chanupa, thanks for being here. Thank you. And you're welcome. So that's all the time we have for today on Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer. Join us next month for our second episode.